All right, let's pray together tonight. Praise God. Father, I do thank you so much for that lovely chorus. See God's glory come down. And Father, I just thank you so much that in every meeting, every time we're together with Christians, we can discern your glory there because Jesus is in the midst of his people when they gather together. And Father, I just discern your glory in the midst of this meeting tonight. I discern it by the Spirit. And Father, I pray that we might be filled with the glory of the Lord and that the glory of the Lord might be shone abroad even from this place. Father, we ask for a river of life to pour from this meeting tonight. And Father, as we are gathered not to receive anything personally, but we're here because we love your word and because we love your truth and because we know it's important that we stand for the truth. Father, as we're here with that pure motive, I ask that we might be blessed. I ask that our families might be blessed. I ask that our businesses might be blessed. I ask that everything to do with us might be blessed. Father, I claim the blessing of Deuteronomy 28 upon every one of the people in this room and those on holiday longing to be with us, that, Father, indeed, we might know the fullness of blessing, that our prayer might be, Father, my cup runneth over with the joy and the bounty that you've poured upon us. And tonight, as we come to dispensations, Lord, and the final talk in dispensations, I want to thank you, Lord, for your wonderful managerial plan of this planet. And I thank you, Father, that your word is understandable. Father, that there's order in it, that we can read it and understand it as it is. Thank you, Father, that you've taken the mysticism away and you've revealed it to those of us who are born by your Spirit. Father, by your Spirit, come and teach us spiritual truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Lord. Amen. All right. Well, we come to the final talk in the three that I'm doing on dispensationalism. And can I say, if you've missed the last two talks, you might find that there are some things tonight you don't quite understand, but I hope you will be blessed. If you have been at the last two uh, talks on dispensations, you should find tonight a complete doddle, right? A very easy thing indeed. Just for the benefit of uh, those who haven't been here, let me just review what we've seen thus far, because tonight we're going to start using this tool of dispensationalism, and we'll see some of the glorious things that it opens up to us in the Scripture. So let's just have a look, shall we, at what we've seen. I hope everyone in this room now understands what a dispensation is, and you understand what dispensationalism says. Dispensationalism says this, that if we look at the history of the earth, we can see distinct phases in the administration of God. In other words, there are many things that remain the same from creation right through to the end, but there are distinct economies, distinct activities that God has engaged in in history. And all dispensationalism tries to do is to look at the various phases and to categorize the characteristics of each phase in God's plan. And if you remember, I outlined that there were four dispensations, four and four only, as far as I am concerned. And these were so simple that we defined them in the very first talk. Do you remember there is a period of time before Israel, which we call pre-Israel, which went from the creation through to the time of the splitting up of the nations, all right, at the Tower of Babel. Then we had the period when God decided to choose one elect nation, 
i.e. Israel, to be his missionary base. And that was the second dispensation, which we call Israel. Then Jesus came, you remember, as king of the Jews, but they rejected him. And as a result, God brought in the third dispensation, that of the church. And then the fourth dispensation occurs after the second advent of Jesus Christ, when Jesus reigns on this earth. We call that the dispensation of Christ or the millennium. So it was as easy as that. And these four basic phases in God's administration were quite clear for us to see. And we defined that in the first talk. I also told you in the first talk, and many of you didn't believe me, that many people consider dispensationalism to be the nearest a Christian can get to a rude word. There are many, many people today who hate the word dispensations and who hate everything that dispensationalism stands for. And I know it was so obvious, that first talk, that you really couldn't understand why. Tonight you're going to understand why, all right? But in the second talk, we then went on to define the characteristics of each dispensation. And more than that, we actually saw that though there are four distinct dispensations, we can actually see subdivisions in the first two. And do you remember we saw that the first dispensation, that which was before Israel, had three subdivisions to it, and we saw Israel had two subdivisions to it. The church had none, uh, no subdivisions, and the period of Christ had none. And we defined the characteristics, and perhaps some of you have still got the sheet, or have got it in front of you, actually going through the characteristics of each of these dispensations. Now, I want to warn you, at the very beginning of this talk, don't overdo dispensationalism. Do you know there's a whole group of people called ultra-dispensationalists? Isn't it terrible? What a name. And these people see dispensations everywhere. Some of them see three or four dispensations just in the book of Acts let alone, you know, outside the book of Acts. And the tr great tragedy of that is that when people see their antics, they then think, oh, well, you see, that's what dispensationalism stands for. It doesn't. The first man to overdo it was a lovely man called Ethelbert Bullinger. Ethelbert Bullinger. And he was the chap who wrote the notes to the Companion Bible. Now, that's a lovely Bible, and you can get lots of good information from it. If you want to study Bible, and you want something that will keep you engaged for many hours, why don't you get a copy of the Companion Bible? But he overdid the dispensations bit, you see, and that's a shame. All right, I stick to the fact there are four dispensations with a few subdivisions. And I'll tell you why I believe that what I've said is right. I've noticed that in the dispensational scheme that I've presented last time and the time before, a major event in history marks the change in dispensation. I just put up the diagram that we saw, and I hope you've all got a copy of this. There were the basic dispensations that we had. By the way, it's not to scale. Pre-Israel, Israel and the church cover the same period of time. They should be the same length. But if you notice this, if you take the big dispensations, pre-Israel begins with creation and ends with the Tower of Babel. Now, they're distinct events. Israel begins with the Tower of Babel and ends, of course, at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a distinct event. Do you see that? Um, the period of... The church then begins, of course, just after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But can you see the period of Christ's reign begins with the second advent? Now there's a distinct event which marks out the dispensations, and not only the dispensations, but distinct, a distinct event which marks out the subdivisions as well. If you take the three subdivisions of the first dispensation, do you notice the fall and the flood are two major events which occur in the first dispensation, and they mark out the periods, the subdivisions of that first dispensation. The Exodus um, is a major event which occurs in the second dispensation, and that creates the subdivision there. Now, I do not think that you can just decide to have a subdivision where you please. I think God marks it. And it's because of these events, creation, the fall, flood, Babel, exodus, first advent, second advent of Christ, that I think we know that we have the correct scheme as far as this is concerned. All right? So they were the basic dispensations and the subdivisions. And by the way, many people have outlined dispensations. They've got a slightly different plan, but they agree basically in, uh, as far as the characteristics are concerned. Darby was one chap, of course, who had a dispensational scheme. Um, Schofield was another, but there were people long before Darby. Do you know that lovely hymn writer, Isaac Watt, was a lovely man, and he had a dispensational framework, you see? And so uh, that's the framework that we've actually got. But what we've got to now do is to see how that is used. And we've got to now start applying it to see how it reveals truth and how actually it reveals the Bible in a most wonderful way. And so I want to go through certain things that we learn by applying dispensational principles to the word of truth. The first thing I want to say is this, that an understanding of dispensations helps you understand those difficult passages which are prophetic in the Old Testament. All right? They really do. Most passages are self-evident when you read them. I mean, any passage that describes uh, the flood of Noah obviously occurred in the pre-Israel dispensation. It occurred at the time, right? And, and when that was penned, that was the time that it actually occurred. If you see an event mentioned that occurred in Solomon's life, well, it refers to Solomon's life. Uh, King Jehoshaphat did such and such, what he did occurred in his lifetime. There are no problems with most passages of Scripture. The problems come when you get a prophetic passage, and suddenly in the middle of the period of Israel, a prophet stands up and he starts prophesying. And he says words which don't apply in his own day, but which apply at a time in the future. And what, what is so difficult sometimes is to understand what, when the fulfillment of that thing is actually going to come. Now, with dispensations, it's easy to see when the fulfillment will be. Let's take uh, two simple examples, and you'll see how straightforward this really becomes now we've done all the back, background work. Let's go to the book of Micah, first of all. And I don't mind if you look it up in the front of your Bibles to find it. Really don't mind at all. Help yourself. Now, I'm going to read in Micah chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 7. This is a passage given through a man who lived in the dispensation of Israel, but what we want to know is at what, what period of time does his prophecy refer to? Now, let me just read it through, and because we're on dispensations, try and pick out the main characteristics of the prophecy that he's giving. Verse 1. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, 
and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. And he, that's the Lord himself, he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the law from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people, and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. For all people will walk, every one, in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, saith the Lord, will I assemble her that halteth, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted, that's Israel, and I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong nation, and the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. All right, now if we take the dispensational principles we know, all we have to do is find the characteristics of this particular passage, compare them to the characteristics we outlined last time, and, as the saying goes, Bob's your uncle. All right? It's quite clear what this can refer to. Just notice a few things. First of all, in verse 1, it says this will occur in the last days. Now, there are three possibilities. Does that mean the last days in the dispensation of Israel? In other words, at the end of Israeli history, right? Up to the time of the first advent, it will be fulfilled then. Or is that a reference to the church? Is this going to be fulfilled in the period we call the church? Or will this be fulfilled then in the very last days when Christ reigns on the earth? That's, they're the three possibilities. Well, what do we know? Well, the house of the Lord will be established, and the mountain it's on will be higher than the other mountains. The nations will actually flow to it, right? It will be in Jerusalem, and from Jerusalem the Lord himself is going to teach then it says, he, the Lord himself, will rebuke nations, he'll be in charge of nations, and there'll be universal peace and universal disarmament. Then it says, verse 4, every man shall sit under his own vine, private property, right? Praise the Lord, no socialism in this particular passage, private property. Um, all will walk in the name of their God, but we, it says, the believers, will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And then we have Israel assembled. Now the question is, which dispensation is it? If you've got the sheet in front of you, you've seen already which one it refers to. But let's uh, see if we can just work it out. First of all, does it refer to Israel? Well, no, it doesn't. You see, we know the history of Israel, and we know this didn't occur in the history of Israel. So that's that one out. Secondly, is it the church? Period. Well, no, no, no. It doesn't fit the characteristics of the church period. By the way, if this were the church period, it would actually contradict many of the passages given in the New Testament. For in the New Testament, we read that throughout the church period, there will be apostasy, right? There is going to be warfare. There is going to be disturbance on the face of the earth. And what is more, Paul makes it quite clear that the church age will end with apostasy, Right? In the last days, there'll be men with itching ears. They won't want sound doctrine. Definitely not. In the last days, there will be this and this and this and all these evil things going on and people not loving the truth and so on. 
No, it can't be the church. Well, therefore, that leaves us with only one alternative. And again, if you remember last week, you'll find that the characteristics given in this passage are exactly the characteristics we saw given as far as the period of the reign of Christ was concerned. Remember, Jesus himself will actually be seated in Jerusalem and he will teach the word of God from there. This is a period of maximum spirituality. The word of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea and Jesus himself is the teacher. You see, this refers to the millennial period and the sheer characteristics that we've outnumbered show that that is clearly so. Now do you see how simple that is? All you have to do is read any Old Testament prophetic passage and you can see exactly where uh, a particular event is going to occur. And by the way, as we'll see in just a moment, the assembling of Israel is going to be one of the things that happens at the very start of the millennium. Right? The king of Israel will arrive here on the earth and he'll whistle for them. It's wrongly translated in the King James. He'll hiss for them hiss for them. It's not actually the word hiss, it's the word whistle, right? Come on! And he'll be calling them from all over the world, all the elect of Israel, and they'll all be gathered into this central place, and so they'll be regathered. Now, that's pretty clear. Well, there's one little passage. Let's just take one other. I think this is so obvious, really, we don't have to give uh, too many. But let's go to a passage we're familiar with. Let's go to uh, Isaiah and chapter 11. Now, needless today to say, I've done many hours on the millennium, and this is one of the passages I've spoken upon at great length. But I don't just want to read verse 6 to verse 9, I then want to go on to verse 10, and so on. Let's have a look at it. The wolf also, it says, this is Isaiah 11 verse 6, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Is that the church age, by the way? No. Praise God. And in case you've got your dispensations wrong, please don't do this. Um, And the cow and the bear shall feed, their young one shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Not for today. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the spitting cobra. Don't do it. If you get your dispensations mixed up, it can be very dangerous for your health. Let me tell you that now. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There's maximum spirituality again, maximum teaching of the word of God. This is a passage for the reign of Christ. It's quite clear. And so, as I've explained in the basic series number four, the fall is pushed back. Uh, when Jesus actually comes to the face of the earth. Now, we're talking then about the reign of Christ. Now, with that in mind, read the rest of the passage. Verse 10. And in that day, now do you notice that phrase? In the day I've just been talking about, says the writer, certain other things are going to happen. Which day? The reign of Christ we're talking about. In that day, there shall be a root of Jesse. Who's that? Jesus, that is. This is a reference to the time when Jesus himself would stand on the earth, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day, underline please, that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. When was the first time he did it? Well, at the Exodus. In that day, 
he's going to do it again. And all the people around the world, all the Jews are going to be brought in. Right? For today, no. It is true that we see in a minor way Jews heading for Israel today. This is the fig tree putting forth its leaves. It's a little sign that the Lord's coming. But it's not the complete fulfillment of this. Every Jew will live in Israel in the, that kingdom day. Isn't that wonderful? He will recover the remnant of his people, which will be left from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. Hallelujah, including Britain. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations, shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, yet Judah shall not vex Ephraim. But they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines towards the west. They shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea. And with his mighty wind shall he shake his hand over the river and shall smite it in, in the seven streams and make men go over dryshod. For there shall be an highway for the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria like as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. And in the first exodus, the whole nation of Israel left Egypt and were taken to the promised land. So shall it be the second time when God moves and brings his people in. Which dispensational period is it? Why, it's that period that was talked of a bit earlier in the chapter. The period of the rule of Christ. All right? And we know that this gathering is going to occur after the second advent of Christ. Do you remember St. Augustine's words, which I quoted in the very first Bible study, that if you distinguish the times, all Scripture is in harmony with itself? Well, here are two passages we've talked about, about Israel coming back and being called back together. It fits in perfectly with Matthew 24. Right? Notice here, the coming of the Lord and then the calling of Israel from the four corners of the earth. Matthew 24 says the same. Let's have a look at Matthew 24. See how it's all beautifully the same message. Matthew chapter 24, verse 30 and 31. Now in verse 30, you have the second advent of Jesus Christ. In verse 31, you have the regathering of Israel. It's as easy as that. Notice the order. The order is the same. Matthew 24, verse 30 and 31. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Why, it's exactly the same picture being given there. All right? Now, do you see, there are certain passages where our knowledge of dispensations makes them absolutely obvious. The meaning is self-evident. But certain people who are non-dispensationalists don't like this. You see, they like to take passages in the Old Testament, like Micah 4, and they like to apply them where they want to apply them. Right? And you can get very excited. You see, you get this idea, well, I believe that the church is going to be so glorious and we're going to be top nation on the earth and all the nations will come to us and we're going to teach them the truth. Now, where's the scripture to prove that? And so, ah, Micah 4. 
There we are, mica 4. Doesn't matter about the characteristics. If necessary, you just allegorize, you, you know, put them into picture language, and it makes it fit everything. And isn't that wonderful, folks? I tell you, these non-dispensationalists, very often, they will use any text as a pretext for their message. And they stand up and they say, right, I believe such and such is going to happen. Where do I get that from? Micah chapter 4. And people who are sitting there say, well, it says it in the Bible. Look, here it is, the house of the Lord. We're the house of the Lord. Right, forget the Jerusalem bit. Right, wherever you live, that's Jerusalem. And then, and then they start going like this, you see. And the reason they hate dispensationalism is this. One, it stops their willy-nilly use of scriptures in the Bible. You can't use the scripture just because it happens to fit in with your little ideas. You just can't do it. Secondly, they don't like it because people who are trained in dispensationalism aren't taken in. I mean, can you imagine me sitting and listening to one of these messages and say, oh, it says it in the Bible. Of course I wouldn't. What I know is that every prophetic scripture refers to a distinct period of time. Beloved, if you get your dispensations wrong, you'll go into deep error. And I have to tell you this, by the way, if Micah 4 refers to the church, the belief must be that there will be universal disarmament in our day and universal peace. There are scriptures in, in the Bible that disprove that for the church period of time. Okay, let me make this point, and it's a very important one. Every genuine supporter of CND, every genuine social activist, Every genuine social gospeler, every genuine supporter of guerrilla movements, supporter, active supporter of communism and so on, do you know what they're really trying to do? They're trying to bring in the reign of Christ, the millennium. Did you know that's what's behind it? That's in their mind, you see. They believe that there can be a universal peace on the face of this earth, that the kingdom can come, and they believe that it's for our generation. They get the wrong dispensation, and as a result, they go into gross error. Isn't it interesting, by the way, that the founders of communism were actually Jewish? They were born and bred with the idea of a, a literal kingdom here on the earth. And what did they do? They said, right, well, we'll do it. We'll bring in the kingdom. Do you know uh, Hitler had the same idea? He wanted a thousand-year Reich. Where did he get the idea from? Why? He wanted the millennium to be brought in. Many British Christians before the First World War were the same. Surely the British Empire will last a thousand years. Of course, yes. We've brought in the kingdom. The British have brought in the kingdom. But you see their mistake. You see, you don't get the age of Christ unless you have the second advent first. And what they're trying to do is bring in the age of Christ without bringing Christ in. Notice this, by the way, there is no universal disarmament and no universal peace until God starts lecturing the nations, until Jesus starts adjudicating among the nations. By the way, this is the spirit of Antichrist. I ministered a few weeks ago in one of the Chichester meetings, and I ministered on the spirit of Antichrist. Many people get this wrong, you see. Many people think anti means against. And they think that the Antichrist will be against Christ. You see? So they're expecting this ogre of a chap who looks at the world and says, I'm going to get you. Right? That's what they're expecting, this evil man. But as I pointed out on that evening, the word anti in Greek doesn't mean against. It means instead of. 
And the spirit of Antichrist is the spirit that replaces Jesus. And when Antichrist comes, by the way, he's going to have a smiling face. He's going to be handsome. He's going to be charming. Right? He really is. He'll stand up in front of the world and say, I've got the answer. I can do it. And what they'll try and do is bring in salvation without the Savior. By the way, this is the spirit behind Band-Aid and Live-Aid. Not Lemonade, but all the other aids. Right? That's the spirit. Well, we know what they're trying to do in human terms, but really what they're trying to do is save the world without Jesus Christ. That's instead of Christ. That's the spirit of Antichrist. And we're going to see it. And by the way, the world is going to be taken in. But there's no excuse for us to be taken in. Do you see? But basically, if they had dispensation sorted out, they wouldn't make any such error. All right? But do you see the anti-dispensationalists, they don't like being restricted and they don't like their message being restricted when it hits your ears. So that's one of the reasons they don't like dispensations. All right? But dispensationalism helps us in other ways as well. It helps us in our study of certain books and certain events in the Bible. Do you know it helps us if, if we study the book of Job? I mean, there is the book of Job. Um, it's just before Psalms. But when did Job live? I mean, when was his book written? Which period of time does it refer to? Well, all we have to do is go through the book of Job and see some of the characteristics. And before long, you've located it. You'll find, for example, in the book of Job, there's no mention of the Exodus. Absolutely none. There's no mention of the Jews being God's elect nation. No, sir. There is no mention of a central place of worship. Absolutely none. There's no mention of the Sabbath at all. And if you know your dispensations, you know, therefore, when the book of uh, Job was written, or when it refers to. It's referring to the first dispensation, the pre-Israel period, or at least the period up to the time of Abraham. You see? Now it helps us as far as that's concerned. Of special interest tonight is this. It once and for all helps us over the whole tribulational issue. Have you noticed how I fudged the tribulation up to this point in these talks? Have you noticed? Look at the diagram again. See how I fudged it? See what I've done? We all know, don't we, that before the second advent of Christ, there's a period of tribulation, don't we? You notice what I've done? I've left a gap. Isn't that convenient? I fudged it. Did you notice that? Well, it was only so that I wouldn't confuse you along the way. But uh, between, uh, well, just before the second advent of Christ, we definitely have a period of tribulation. Now, it's very important to know which dispensation the tribulation belongs to. Let's read it in Matthew 24, by the way. We've read verse 30 and 31. Let's read them again, but let's add verse 29 in front of them. Just add it. Verse 29. Immediately. Now, notice that word. I'll be back to it in just a moment. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet. They shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So the order is this period we call the tribulation, then the second advent, then the gathering of Israel. That's the order clearly outlined here. But the question is, but hold on, which dispensation does the tribulation belong to? 
very important question. Which does it belong to? You see, if it belongs to the church period, say the tribulation is part of the church period, the church will obviously go through the tribulation. Of course it will. If it doesn't belong to the church period, then obviously the church won't go through the tribulation. So this is very important. Well, how do we discover it? Dispensationally then. Now, I proved what I believe from other passages, but how do we do it dispensationally? Why? It's easy. All we have to do is look at the characteristics of the tribulation and then compare the characteristics to the chart that we saw last week and, again, Bob's your uncle. Right? Easy as that. All right, where are the the, uh, characteristics given? Well, first of all, they're given in Matthew 24. Let's uh, read it, shall we? Start verse 3. Remember, he's speaking to the disciples. Remember, they're sitting in the age of Israel. It hasn't come to an end yet. And in verse 3, on the sitting on the Mount of Olives, on which Jesus will return, of course, one day, the disciples ask him a question. Verse 3, and as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world? Now, do you see that phrase, the end of the world? If you've got that little phrase, the end of the world, could you cut out the word world? Can you actually put a line through it and put the word age in? The question they're asking is not what is the sign of the end of the world, but what is the sign of thy coming and of the end of the age. Now, which age is he referring to? He's referring to the age of Israel in which they are actually living. So let's read on. Verse 4. Jesus answered, said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, I'm the Messiah. Many will come, claiming that. And they shall deceive many. You shall hear of wars and rumours of wars. See that ye be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of the sorrows. This is the period of tribulation he's talking about. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted. They shall kill you and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, shall hate one another, and many false prophets shall arise, shall deceive the many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall grow cold. But he that endures to the end of the tribulation, the same will be saved or delivered." And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Now notice verse 15. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoever readeth let him understand, then them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Now before we read on, just notice verse 15. Notice the reference there to the holy place. Where's the holy place? Well, it's the temple, isn't it? Right? The holy place is in the temple. If you read the book of Daniel, and specifically chapter 9, you will know that at the time this occurs, because this is a quotation from the book of Daniel, there are animal sacrifices occurring. So there are animal sacrifices in the temple, and Antichrist comes along and he sets up an idol in the temple. So we've got the temple and we've got animal sacrifice. Verse 16 again. 
Then let them which be in Judea, the emphasis is upon Israel, the land of Israel here, let them flee to the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. Now verse 20. Notice verse 20 very carefully. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. Now do you notice the reference there to the Sabbath? What what is the reference here to the Sabbath? Well, did you know that the Jews had a very definite rule? You were not allowed to travel more than a little distance on the Sabbath. Did you know that? Does that apply to the church, by the way? No, it doesn't. Do you know, I know some people who try and keep the, the Sabbath in the church, but they'll think nothing of jumping in their car and travelling off to a convention on the Sunday. Try and keep the Sabbath without this rule on travel. But there was a restriction on travel on the Sabbath. And then it goes on. For then shall be great tribulation, such as what was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. And so it goes on. Now, what are the characteristics here that he's talking about? It's the end of the age of Israel that is referred to in verse 3. Wars, rumours of wars, that's cold wars. There'll be persecution. The temple's there. Animal sacrifices are there. All right? And you've got the Sabbath rule actually in operation. Well, if you look through the dispensations, you will see that these actually are not the characteristics of the age of the church. They're not. They are the characteristics of nothing else but the age of Israel. And it's interesting because this tribulation that Jesus is talking about has the hallmarks of the age of Israel on it, not the age of the church. And that's dispensationally speaking. By the way, that's also confirmed in Old Testament prophecies. And let's read two Old Testament prophecies and let's see. They refer to this period of the tribulation and they give the age of Israel characteristics for it. First of all, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. And Moses is going to let them have it in Deuteronomy 4. Do you remember they're about to go into the promised land? It's the beginning of their time in the land. And Moses chooses this time to actually talk about the end of their time in the land. Right? Very, very cunning. And verse 25. Deuteronomy 4, verse 25. Now, let me read it carefully again. When thou shalt beget children, and children's children, and ye shall have remained long in the land, right, you've been in the land a long time, and shall corrupt yourselves and make a graven image or the likeness of anything and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you shall soon utterly perish from off the land whereunto you, shall, you go over Jordan to possess it. You shall not prolong your days upon it, but you shall utterly be destroyed. And the Lord shall scatter you among the nations. Is that true today? It is true today. Israel is scattered among the nations. And you shall be left few in number among the heathen, whither the Lord shall lead you. And there ye shall serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. But, now notice verse 29, but if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him if thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. 
when thou art in tribulation, who's he talking to? Talking to the people about to enter the promised land, this is Israel. When thou art in tribulation, and all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days, notice the phrase, if thou turn to the Lord thy God, and shall be obedient unto his voice, for the Lord thy God is a merciful God, he will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he sware unto them. Now can you see, it's clear. You've got a period of tribulation, and even in the midst of that tribulation, if you will call upon me, I'll remember my covenant to you. It's, this is one of the passages that makes us believe that Israel's got a future. Hallelujah. Now, do you see? It fits in. This is the characteristic of the age of Israel. One last passage. I could go through many, but I've been through them on other tapes. If you go to Jeremiah and chapter 30, again, look for the characteristics. Forgive my reading these large passages, but do you see the point I'm making? The characteristics are clear. And so we're thinking dispensationally. Jeremiah 30, verse 1. A promise that the captivity of Israel and Judah will cease. The word that came to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 30, verse 1, from the Lord, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write thee all the words that I have spoken unto thee in the book. For lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people, Israel and Judah, saith the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Now we've read scriptures about that. When does it occur? Just after the second advent. Aha. So let's read on. And these are the words that the Lord spake concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus saith the Lord, We've heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask ye now, and see whether a man doth travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man, with his hands on his loins, as a woman in travail? And all faces are turned into paleness. Men are walking around like this. They're in such agony. They're in tribulation. That's what he's talking about. Verse 7, Alas, for the day is great so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. Now, of course, the Gentiles will go through tribulation as well. But you see, it's called here the time of Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it. That's the good news. Why, that's the order. Tribulation, second advent of Christ, Israel saved out of the tribulation. And that's what this is talking about. For it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck. I will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. What wonderful news for Israel. But they shall serve the Lord their God. Isn't that lovely? And so they will in the time of Christ's reign. And David, their king, whom I will raise up unto them. They're going to be back in the land. Going to have a king again. Therefore, fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, saith the Lord, neither be dismayed, O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity, and Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. Hallelujah. Now, do you see, it's got all the hallmarks, what of, of the church? Certainly not. It's got the hallmarks of the age of Israel. 
Oh, I should say this. I have met supporters of Israel, Christians today, who say that this period referred to here in Jeremiah and the period referred to in Deuteronomy 4 refers to the Holocaust. Right? They say it refers to the time in the last war when Auschwitz and the other um, concentration camps, you know, were, were being so cruel to the Jews. Beloved, I'm afraid it cannot be so. Because Matthew 24 says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the second advent will occur. And the second advent hasn't. I'm afraid it cannot refer to the Holocaust. And don't please be put off by people. They're taking odd scriptures and forgetting the others. Do you see how all these give the same picture? It's tribulation, the second advent, and Israel regathered. Hallelujah. And it's in that order. Every passage is the same and gives the same order. All right. Dispensationally, therefore, it's locked. It also helps us in Revelation 7, this, and it gives the same answer. Go through to the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation 2 and 3 is full of the church. Hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But suddenly, you know, after Revelation 4, the church is gone. It's not mentioned again. In fact, in Revelation 13, 9, don't turn to it, it actually says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. And forget to the churches, the church isn't mentioned in that passage. And what do you find? You find from chapter 6 to chapter 19, tribulation described. And then in chapter 19, you see the second advent of Christ. Now the question is, is it the church or is it Israel that's in that period? Well, look at uh, Revelation chapter 7. And don't spiritualize it. Read it as it is. Well, there are certain servants sealed in their foreheads. Verse 4. And I heard the number of them which were sealed. And there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. See that? We're locked. Then it describes them, 12,000 of this tribe, 12,000 of that tribe, 12,000 of this, 12,000 of that, 12,000 of this. We're talking about Israel again. You see? Now dispensationally, this is very clear. And what do we see, therefore, that the tribulation is actually part of the age of Israel? Ah, but hold on, you say, but listen. You said that every dispensation and every subsection began with a major event. What's the major event that begins the tribulation? Well, it's nothing else but the rapture of the church. So the church lasts from the resurrection of Christ through to the time when it's raptured. At the rapture of the church, guess what? Another subdivision of the age of Israel comes in. And so it's rather interesting. We have four dispensations, but the first two dispensations have three subsections each. So let's think of uh, the dispensation of Israel again. What are the three subsections? Well, from Babel... To the Exodus, you've got that subsection that we've talked about. From the Exodus to the resurrection of Christ, you've got the period we call the law subsection. And then after the rapture of the church, you've got the tribulation. And that's the third part of the age of Israel. That particular period does not have the marks of the church age upon it. It has the marks of the age of Israel. Well, as soon as you say that, the anti-dispensationists grind their teeth. Right? They don't want that, you see. They want the church to be dangled over the tribulation. You're going to go through the tribulation, so you jolly well better get going. 
right? <clears throat> Rather like those who feel you can lose your salvation. They dangle you over hellfire to try and keep your allegiance. Listen, if with your children you keep their allegiance by dangling them over hellfire, I would suggest you're going to have mighty odd children. Don't you think so? And the thing that God loves is a willing giver. He, by his spirit, is leading us as a shepherd leads the flock into holiness and into love. Not this battering thing, oh yes, you're going to be the bride of Christ, but first I'm going to send you to Vietnam. Right? That's not it. And this battered bride comes out of the tribulation all fit for her bridegroom. That's not the picture that you get um, in the Bible. Not at all. All right. By the way, the critics come along. There are two criticisms they make of the dispensational uh, scheme at this point. The first is, they all say this, listen, there is no scripture which says that the church will be raptured before the tribulation. Now, I disagree with that, and on my tapes on the tribulation, I've actually given certain scriptures. But don't you be put off by a criticism like that. What you ought to say is, but hold on a minute, there isn't one scripture that says the church is going to be raptured at the end of the tribulation. There isn't one. Go back to Matthew 24. What they say is that Matthew 24 is the church. Right? The whole of Matthew 24 applies to the church. Can't see any of the characteristics of the church in it. There aren't any. By the way, if the church is there, do you realise it's time we built the temple in Jerusalem again and started sacrifices? And by the way, we've got to keep the Sabbath rule. And let's all go and live in Judea as well. Just read these three verses again. They say that the teaching in Scripture is that the church is raptured at the end of the tribulation. What they believe is this. The the church goes through the tribulation, Jesus then appears in the air, and on his way down, we're scooped up to meet him, and then we continue down with him. That's what they believe. Oh yes, where is it? They criticise us for having no scripture that says the church will be raptured at the beginning of the tribulation. Look, verse 29 again. How many times have I read this today? This is my third time through. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Well, where's the rapture of the church? Well, it's in that little gap, you see, at the end of verse 29. It's not mentioned in the slightest way. Well, I think, really, people who live in glass houses really shouldn't throw stones, you know. The one thing we can certainly say is there is no reference here to a post-tribulational rapture of the church. There is total silence about it. Why? Because the church has already gone. That's why. So that's the first criticism. The second criticism they make is, oh, if you say that the age of Israel continues after the rapture of the church, that means the church is in brackets. You have Israel up to the time of Jesus, and then the church comes in, and then the church is removed, and Israel continues. So the church is just in brackets. Huh, you relegate the church. Beloved, the history of the church doesn't end when it's raptured. The history of the church keeps marching through, praise God. And we go straight up to heaven, and then we come back down to the earth again. Then we reign on the earth. That's not the end of the church. Oh, ridiculous to say that it's just in brackets like that. That's not true at all. All right, but do you see, dispensations simply confirm the truth we've seen by applying other principles. 
that the church cannot go through the tribulation. Dispensationally, it will put every dispensation out. You cannot have it. The third thing that dispensations helps us with is this. There are certain passages in Scripture which without dispensation, uh, dispensational truth, we have a lot of problems with. The whole of Matthew 25 becomes a major problem if you do not know dispensations. You know Matthew 25 begins with the ten virgins. Do you remember, I've done the tape on the ten virgins, and I say people push it and squash it and squeeze it and forget little bits here and forget little bits there to try and make it fit in their pattern. If you see that this is teaching for the tribulation, then you don't have to squash it or pat it or bake it or do anything. It fits nicely into the, te- in, into the, the mold of the whole of Scripture. Now listen to that tape on the ten virgins. However, the passage of Scripture that I want to show you is from verse 31 onwards. Matthew 25, verse 31. And I'll tell you this, this is a major problem passage for all evangelicals. Beware when you quote this passage. If you're not a dispensationalist, you've got trouble in this particular passage. By the way, some people who are not born-again Christians have this passage as their entire Bible. Lord Soper and others, you know. They uh, stand up. Lord Soper doesn't like born-again Christians, as you know. And he will actually stand up, and this is his Bible, you see. Here is, this is the Bible. Oh, and the Sermon on the Mount, I should say. That's the Bible, as far as he's concerned. You know what it says, um, verse 31. Can I read it again? We're reading a lot of uh, passages tonight. But verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Notice the second advent of Christ, this is. And before him shall be gathered all nations. He shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. He shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For when I was unhungered, you gave me meat. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger, you took me in. Naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee unhungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and we gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of one of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Does that ring a bell? Hear this, uh, right, ten to eight. In the morning, here it is. You've done it to the least of one of these, my brethren. And so do you see, all of us have got the divine spark. And we're all brothers and sisters. We've got to help one another. And it's only when we help one another that we'll really, you know, get there. So we've got to be good. And this is the gospel of good works. The trouble is, of course, they've got problems. Read on. Verse 41. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And the problem they've got is they don't believe in the devil, and they don't believe in his angels, and they don't believe in hellfire. Isn't that a pity? So they never read verse 41. They stop at verse, um, verse 40. That's nice. Right? And the social gospels stop right there. Because what they're really saying is, look, you're going to make it anyway, folks. 
All right? Every one of us is going to get there anyway. I mean, a loving God never casts out anyone. But while we're down here, well, we may as well help and, and all the rest. They don't really take it seriously. You see, it's a misuse of the passage. Then he says, For I was unhungered, you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you took me not in. Naked, you clothed me not. Sick and in prison, you visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee unhungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he say, uh, then shall he answer them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you did it not to the least of one of these, you did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. And so these social gospelers, they take bits of this, but really it's a problem passage to them, because it talks about hellfire and they don't believe it. But if it's a problem to them, beloved, it's a major problem to evangelical Christians. Oh, it is. Because you see what this apparently says is that if you don't do these things, you will actually go to hell. And it's passages like this that people who believe in salvation by works will quote, and the rest of us hope they don't know they're in the Bible. Right? We hope they won't actually mention it. Now, we cannot fob ourselves off with a passage like this. Many people do. I'm going to quote from a magazine, which is a recent magazine. And it's good in parts, this magazine. There are certain things I don't like about it. But this dear man, and I won't tell you who it is, he's a lovely brother in Christ. He wants to try and spur us up to give to the poor. Now there are many passages in the Bible that tell us that we must remember the poor and we must be open-hearted and generous to the poor. Now what he does is quote this passage, but he quotes it in a very interesting way. This is what he says, Inasmuch, that's what the, the paragraph is called, In the parable of the sheep and the goats, Matthew 25, 31-46, Jesus speaks of the time when all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. Those who are blessed by the Father will take their inheritance and the test will be, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat, I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink, I was a stranger and you invited me in, I needed clothes, you clothed me, I was sick, you looked after me, I was in prison, you came to see me. These are not popular words with evangelicals, he says. Preachers rarely refer to them, and when they do, there is a strong temptation to spiritualize. But Jesus' words are straight and uncompromising. Man has a duty to feed and clothe and care for his brother in need. Those who have must care for those who have not. Greedy selfish indulgence brings us under the condemnation of God. Now this man is a lovely Bible-believing Christian. He believes that once you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. And here he's quoting a passage that says, if you don't do what this passage says you should do, you will be cast into everlasting fire. Now, do you see how he's got out of it? He doesn't actually quote the passage. He simply puts the verse, Matthew 25, 31 to 46. If he actually wrote it out here, he'd have to go into big theological problems. Of, well, of course, this isn't salvation by works. Beloved, you don't have to quote this passage to prove that we've got to look after the poor. And if you do quote it, you've got major problems on your hand. He'd fobbed us off. Do you see that? Very neatly and nicely by not actually spelling out what it says. And he's hoping that most people who read that won't actually read the context. We cannot do it. What does this mean? It's once you see that the teaching is in the tribulation, it becomes easy. Why so easy? In the tribulation, it's the age of Israel. It's the Jews who are preaching the gospel. The 144,000 preach the gospel. 
They get many, many people converted, many Jews, many Gentiles, but they are persecuted terribly. Now, in this passage, you don't have two groups, you've got three groups. You've got sheep, you've got goats, and you've got a group called These My Brethren. Do you see the three groups that you've got? Who are these my brethren? Why, who are they but the 144,000 evangelists of Revelation 7? Who are they but the Jews who preach the gospel in the tribulation? And they are persecuted. And they are chased. We know that from the book of Revelation. They are chased by the Antichrist, by his, his army and so on. And they're fleeing. And as they flee, they preach the gospel. Now the point is this. Who's going to take them in? Only those who are born again. Only those who are believers in the tribulation. The unbelievers will persecute them as much as uh, the army itself. And that's what this is referring to. You see? Isn't it interesting, by the way, in the last war? Do you know many, many Bible-believing Christians were the ones in Europe who took in the believing Jews? When the persecution hit, it was very often Bible-believing Christians that took in the Jews and gave them succor and sheltered them. Isn't that right? Isn't it a testimony to Denmark? Do you know not one Jewish Dane went into a concentration camp? Not one. The Christians hid them and smuggled them out to Sweden. Isn't that interesting? You see? Now, what's true in the last war is going to be even more true in the tribulational period. It's going to be the believers in the tribulation who hide, who look after, who clothe, who feed, who give to drink these dear ones who are preaching the gospel. And at that final judgment, it will be the fruit of these believers that they have done just that to these uh, Jewish evangelists and to any other person who preaches the gospel and is persecuted for it. If you see it in a dispensational context, there is no problem whatsoever in a passage like that. You see? All right. Well, you can read it through for yourself. And if you listen to the Ten Virgins, you will see how it follows on just beautifully from the teaching given in the Ten Virgins. Again, people say, oh, I don't like this. You mean that a certain passage of Scripture only refers to one group of people? Well, really, I don't think that's right. Beloved, there are many passages in Scripture that refer to only one group of people. Many, many, many passages. I'll give you one, shall I, just to, to show you this. Go to Matthew chapter 10. I'd like to see uh, Matthew chapter 10 applied to the church, by the way. We would have a, a difficult time. Verse 5. Matthew 10, verse 5. These twelve, the twelve disciples, Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and enter not any city of the Samaritans, don't enter it, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, go and preach the gospel, but only to the Jews. Does that apply to the church, by the way? I mean, do you go to your next door neighbor and say, oh, I wish I could tell you the gospel, but I just can't, you know, we can only preach to Jews. It says it in the Bible. Look, it says it here, don't go to the Gentiles. All the Samaritans, don't go, no, no, only to the Jews. Are you Jewish? Oh, sorry, old chap. No, that's it. I just wait for some Jews to arrive. Of course you can't do that. And, and it's wrong, you see, to actually say that there are certain passages of the Bible that um, can be applied willy-nilly to anyone. It's not true. All right, having said all of that, I want to end tonight's study with a warning. Don't you ever misuse dispensationalism. 
Now, there are people who, when they come across a difficult verse or one they don't like, they say, oh, well, of course, it's for the kingdom to come. It's for the reign of of, uh, Christ. Or that was only for Israel, you know. Right? And what a nice little get-out that is, you know. And all of a sudden, well, of course, I read that passage. It's irrelevant to me. Uh, The passage they do it to most are the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, this lovely sermon of Jesus and the way it is manhandled in this day and age, not just by Lord Soper, but by dispensationalists. Dispensationalists are terrible. On the Sermon on the Mount, they're dreadful. They really are. Can we just turn to it, right? By the way, the best book on the Sermon on the Mount is Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' book. And I would highly recommend that book to you all. If that's not on your bookshelves, it jolly well ought to be, and it would do you good to read a chapter a day for the next so many days. It's a fabulous book. It really is. All right? Let's uh, have a look at Matthew chapter 5. Now you've got the Lord's hopers of this world, and they're saying, you see, this is how we should all live. This is for the world, right? This is it. We must all live the Beatitudes. He actually said, you know, well, my gospel is the Beatitudes. That's how I live. Right? That's what he says. However, you get dispensationalists who say, well, you see, the Sermon on the Mount is uh, for the kingdom. It's for the time when Jesus reigns on the earth. It's not for us. (laughs) Isn't that nice? So you may as well flick over Matthew chapter 5 and 6, just forget it, go straight on to chapter 7. Don't you dare do that with any passage of Scripture. By the way, even though Old Testament passages refer to Israel, we've got things to learn through them. Don't, don't do it. And you know in my own teaching, I cover every sort of passage that's going. Let's, who is this for? Well, let's, let's just read the first bit. He opened his mouth and taught them. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Is that for the world? Of course it's not for the world. I mean, if you're meek in the world, you don't inherit the earth. You just get kicked underfoot. Don't you? I mean, they kick you when you're down and then they splatter mud on you. Blessed are those who mourn. Not true in the world, not in the slightest way. Says later on, you know that all businessmen give to whoever asks you. Well, wouldn't that be fine, right? Which business would, be, uh, would actually still be in business? If you gave to, oh, another begging letter, oh, 3,000 pounds, well, I better do it. And so you say, cause it doesn't refer to the world, that's plain obvious. But does it refer to the millennium? No. Verse 10. Well, it does, but not only to the millennium. Verse 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you, say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. But beloved, for most of the 1,000 years there is no persecution. This can't be either for the rule of Christ. Come on, dispensationally, it doesn't fit. No, it doesn't. Let's go to verse 39. Is this what you do when someone hits you? Right? I mean, you're mugged. And this is what you do, is it? They'll be picking up your carcass in the street. Verse 38. You have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil. But whoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Right? Slept you around this one. And he slept you on that, and so you should turn the other one again. I mean, that's not the way. And it's interesting, Jesus didn't do this. Jesus did not turn the other cheek. Not literally. Isn't it? 
Keep your finger in the place. Let's have a look at that, shall we? Go to John 18. John 18. Because this gives us the balance and tells us what it's about. John 18. Right? Jesus is saying in verse 20 that he taught openly in the synagogue. Uh, He taught among the Jews. He says, I've said nothing secret. Verse 21, he asked this question, Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I have said. Verse 22, And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Now what does Jesus do? Does he turn the other cheek? No, he doesn't. What does he say? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Listen, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount are not for the world, neither are they just for the reign of Christ. They are for those who are the poor in spirit, that is, spiritual believers who are dependent upon the Lord. They are for those who mourn about their sin. They are for those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we have the law of the inner man of a devoted believer. That's what we've got. We've got the law that applies to us on the inside. This is how we should react in the inside. That's what Jesus says this is all about. All right? It's the inner life that is being talked of. And remember he's saying it in front of Pharisees who concentrated on the outer life. All the time they were interested in the outer life. And Jesus said of them, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside. You're full of dead men's bones. And the point he came to make was this. You've got to be clean on the inside, folks. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, for believers of every generation and every dispensation, this is the law that shall be in you and therefore coming out of you. We are those who are the dependent. Right, in spirit, aren't we? We're dependent upon the Lord. This isn't even talking about carnal Christians. This is talking about those who love the Lord with all their hearts. You see? And this is the message. How could he get over to these Pharisees? Your outer righteousness isn't enough. You cannot be righteous on the outside and get away with it on the inside. I wish believers today would really see this. You know? Many of us, we look for the outside. As long as the envelope's clean, it doesn't matter what's inside. And sometimes one of the, some of the most legalistic Christians are those, they don't sin outwardly, they just sin in their mind. They think about it, you know, as they're relaxing in an armchair. And they think they're righteous. And then someone actually does the sin, and they think, oh, look at that. Oh. Just because it's been in their mind, they think that they're righteous. But they're not righteous. And Jesus says something very interesting in Matthew 5. Go back to Matthew 5. And we'll end on this particular verse. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou should not commit adultery. The Pharisees say, quite right, I've never committed adultery. Certainly not. Verse 28, but I say to you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And the whole point of the Beatitudes is sin in the heart. Replacing with righteousness in the heart. Do you see? Now he really gets the Pharisees in the next verses. Look what he says. He says, all right. Now they're concentrating on the outer. He says, all right, he says. If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out then. Come on, take it out. 
and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off, and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not thy whole body should be cast into hell. Now what's this talking about? Here is the point that he's making. Look, Pharisees, if, you're, if you've got lust in your head, go on, pluck your eyes out. Take your eyes out. Get your ears out. Cut your arms off and your legs off. Does that mean you'll stop sinning? No, it doesn't. You can sit there totally limbless and you're still sinning away on the inside. And this is the point Jesus is trying to get over. You see, you can do all of these things on the outside, but he's talking about the inner man. And you can still lust after a woman in your heart. To see the point that he's making. And he's taking the logic of the Pharisees to absurdity to show them how ridiculous it is. Beloved, the Beatitudes must not be mishandled by dispensationalists. Don't you dare cast forth the Beatitudes as not belonging to this dispensation, nor any other passage. You face up to the teaching that's actually in it. Well, a powerful, powerful tool is dispensationalism. Do you know, I can honestly say that my early love of dispensational truth was one of the things that opened the Bible unto me. And I got a very old book by Clarence Larkin, who was a, a designer. And he did a book in 1910 or something like that on dispensational truth. Oh, it was wonderful. You know, it really was such a gold mine for me. I think it's a bit old-fashioned now, but it's a lovely book if you get a chance to actually have a look at it. You will find with dispensational truth that you can take the Bible from beginning to end and you will find it forms the most beautiful pattern of truth coming forth. Augustine was right. Distinguish the times. Make sure you know which time is being spoken about and the whole scripture comes into harmony with itself. A powerful weapon for us. But listen, the sharper the tool, the more careful you've got to be with it. But what an awful weapon for those who don't like what dispensational truth teaches. Well, let's take it away. Let's think about it. I think you'll see that in this series of tapes I haven't forced anything. We've just seen the Bible as it is. And let's rejoice that we can see these many truths from many different aspects and come to the same conclusion. Beloved, it's sure. Israel has a future, praise God. They're going to come back to the land, praise the Lord. It's certain that Jesus is coming again, and beloved, it's certain the church cannot and will not go through the tribulation. Praise God. Next time, we're on divine institutions, and we're going to have a look at the divine institutions and their effect upon our society. All right, let's just pray before we complete for this evening. Hallelujah. Oh, praise you, dear Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Lord. Praise you, praise you, praise you. Oh, hallelujah, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Father, I know that so many Christians today are proud because they're sound. But I know that the word sound means healthy. And Father, I just pray that we might be healthy in our minds and in our hearts in our Christianity. I pray, Father, we should not go for cheap legalism. Father, that we should not concentrate on the outer man but you concentrate on the inner man. We ask you to make us clean in our hearts, Lord. And Father, we ask also that we might be those who rightly divide the word of truth and not those who misuse the word of truth to our own ends. 
Father, help us to teach the truth from beginning to the end of the Bible. Oh, I thank you for what you've revealed to us in these talks on dispensations. And I pray, Father, that as people listen and take in this truth, they might find the Bible flowering before their very eyes. Thank you for all you've taught us. We acknowledge that all glory belongs to you. And Father, please just bless us. And bless us, Father, as we go uh, our separate ways tonight. And may we know your peace and relaxation. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Praise God.